0: Now, all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near him to listen to him. You notice that tax collectors have a very special place. It's below sinners. Uh, they they never said just sinners. It was always tax collectors and sinners. Uh, the last church I served, we had the... Uh, uh, county or the uh, the tax assessor collector for the area in our congregation, and so whenever we came to this, it would get really funny. As I talked about how they loathed tax collectors, but really back then tax collectors were people who were they were Jewish, but they had turned on their own people for personal gain. They and so they were. Traitors, traitors who were hurting their pocketbooks on top of everything else, and so tax collectors—they believed if they believed in hell, they believed tax collectors had a very special place in it. And then there were the sinners, those who were far from God for different reasons, and yet all these people who were so looked down on by the religious people—they liked Jesus and Jesus liked them. And this just really perturbed the religious leaders. And so here they are, and they mutter, or they grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. To them, if you were religious, if you were righteous, these were people that you shunned. These were people that if they came into your sanctuary, you uh, help them to get back out the door and tell them to get some better clothes on or whatever it is that they need to do. But they didn't have anything to do with tax collectors or sinners. And so they grumbled because Jesus was breaking the rules. He was receiving them he was going ahead and talking to them and not shooing them away not turning his back on them and pretending they're not there he received them when they came to listen he talked to them he blessed them he forgave them he did the same with the tax collectors as they came and that bothered them because you weren't supposed to treat sinners like that And tax collectors like that. And what really bothered them is that he ate with them. Because in that day and time, and it's still a lot that way today, let's face it, you don't sit down and share a meal in your home with just anybody. And you don't go into just anybody's home and sit down at their table and eat the food that they have prepared. To do that means that you have identified with them and have a very special relationship with them. It's a close friendship. It's almost just a step above family whenever you have people into your home. And they come into your home, respond to the invitation, and sit. And there is an equality there. There could never be equality with tax collectors and sinners. And so they grumbled. And as they grumbled, Jesus heard and he knew. And so it says that uh, as he heard this, he answered and uh, he told them this parable saying... And then he begins to speak. But I want us to remember all through this series who he's speaking to. He's speaking to the really religious people, those people that were trying to be God's chosen people. That's who he's talking to as he begins this. And as he is talking to them, what he is sharing with them is the fact, hey, you got it all wrong. Everything you've ever heard, everything you've ever learned about the kingdom of God and your relationship with God, it's all wrong. Listen to me. And he begins to share this parable. And first of all, he identifies us as sheep. There's a shepherd and there are sheep. And so, first of all, let's look at the sheep. Being identified as sheep, you need to understand who sheep are in the in the Old Testament and in their culture, and who sheep still are today. Uh, sheep are stupid. Let's just face it. They need continuous care. They cannot take care of themselves. Left to themselves, they will live a difficult, very difficult existence, and they will die very early. They need the constant care of a shepherd to really make it in this world and to have the good and abundant life that a sheep is supposed to have. And so, uh, let's face it, sheep wander off, sheep lose their direction, ezekiel says they're so self-centered that uh and just thinking about themselves and grass and what they want for themselves uh that uh they they eat the grass and don't leave any left for the other sheep they uh get to the water first and muddy it with their feet so that the others behind them have to drink muddy water they butt one another and they bite one another and uh uh this is one of the things I was reading a uh, uh a trilogy about being a shepherd that was written by a gentleman named Kerr, who for eight years was a shepherd before he became a pastor. And uh he uh just shares some very fascinating insights about sheep. And uh one of the things that he'd recognized was their their uh, uh their pecking order. Sheep have a pecking order. It's usually one strong, older ewe that is the head of the flock. And whenever, and she gets the best of everything and uh, everybody gets out of the way for her. And if they don't, she butts them and she puts them in their place. And then the next strongest sheep is right behind her doing the same thing. And so uh they have this pecking order, and because of that, they are always jostling one another, hurting one another, and there's unrest in the flock, but he's he was you noticed that whenever the shepherd was there, in the presence of the shepherd that stopped. I find that amazing because I've been in congregations where uh They All they knew how to do was be church. They didn't know the Lord. And in that church, they were butting one another. They were biting one another. They were making sure everybody was in their place. And whenever they got their eyes off of each other and owned the great shepherd, all of a sudden, there would be peace in the flock. Sheep are amazing animals but they are so helpless on their own. And uh, he says that we're like sheep. In fact, Isaiah 700 years before said, all of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And then what it says, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Here, 700 years before, Jesus is starting to be depicted as the Paschal Lamb. We're sheep. We need to be rescued, and whenever a sheep wanders off and the shepherd goes out after it and he finds the sheep, the sheep won't follow him home. Did you know that? I didn't know that. That, uh if if you find the sheep and you say hey come on boy they'll look at you yeah yeah sure mm-hmm. mm, grass you know and they'll just go on back to eating grass and that's all they think about is grass 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 they'll they'll nibble themselves over a cliff just looking at the glad at the grass and not seeing where they're going but they have no concept of just uh uh following the, the shepherd home because they've got good stuff where they are there and That's all they know, and so they stay right there. And so to take the sheep home, you have to catch the sheep, bind its front legs and its back legs, put it over your shoulders, and carry it home. That's the only way you can get the sheep back home. If you'll look at the front of your bulletin, or if you will look at your handout, you will see... The way that you have to carry a sheep home. That's why that picture is there. Because sheep aren't like a dog. If you find your dog, he says, Oh man, I'm just so glad to see you. I've been wondering where I was. You know, Oh, that's the way home. And he'll probably, he'll get his, gets his bearings. He'll head home on his own. Or he'll follow you and he'll stick close to you. A sheep won't do anything like that. You've got to pick him up and carry them to get them back with the flock. And so in this passage, in the parable, look, he says, when he has found it, he had to go out and find it. He won't just wander home. He lays it on his shoulders. You see, he depicts the sheep having to be carried home. He lays it on his shoulders rejoicing, and he takes it home. But then I want you to notice what happens next. I don't know if you've ever noticed this. He says, uh, when he comes home, have you noticed this part in this passage? He calls together his friends and his neighbors. He, he, has, he calls them together. He has a gathering. He brings his friends and neighbors together. And he says to them, rejoice with me. He's saying, let's have a party. Rejoice with me. For I have found my sheep, which was lost. I'd never noticed that part in this passage till just this week, that he calls his neighbors and his friends together to rejoice with him in the return of the sheep. And he says, I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons. Who need no repentance. Wow. This is another thing I've, I learned this week as I was looking at this. It says the word of God is like a two-edged sword dividing even soul and spirit. And what, you know, the shepherd looks after the whole sheep, not just its spirit. And a lot of times I think that people think that, okay, I can get my spirit saved and live my life the way i want to and the thing is or, or you can you can uh, but as long as my spirit is right with god you see your soul is your entire body the way you act the way you work the way you feel that's your soul your emotions your and it it, it it's in your body it gives life to your body and the spirit it controls the soul but somehow we think we can get our spirit saved and our soul is still our own. And there's no dividing the two. Only the word of God can divide the two. And whenever it does, it shows us where we are wrong and where we need to get back on track. You know, in Psalm 23, it talks about thy rod and thy staff. They comfort me. And that's not talking about the same instrument in two ways there was a rod and there was a staff. The staff was longer and thinner and uh, it was used just to guide the more cooperative sheep. But it also many times had a crook on the end to help pull sheep out when they got in bad places and needed help. But the rod was an instrument. It was more like an Irish shillelagh. It was a club. It's what David would have used to Fight off uh, the animals from his flock. The club was a short, it was, the rod was a shorter, stout, bigger headed club. And it was used also to give a little firmer direction to the sheep that weren't so cooperative. And if he saw a sheep that was getting ready at a distance to eat a plant that it shouldn't eat, that was poisonous or something, he, they could throw the rod and hit close to the sheep and startle it and move it away from what was going to hurt it and so thy rod and thy staff they come from me it's not that he beat them with it but he you they were used to guide and direct and to keep on the right path and we as sheep need that we need to be rescued the lost sheep, as I said, won't follow you home. And you and I find ourselves at some point in our life, or we did at some point in our life, find ourselves lost. You and I are utterly on our own lost in our sin. And we can do nothing to contribute to our salvation. We have to be saved purely by grace not a matter of cooperation. It's not like Jesus comes to us and says, Okay, now then I want you to follow my example. Okay. No, we're not a dog that can take direction like a sheep can. We have to be picked up and carried. We can't do it ourselves. Jesus was not just a great teacher who told us how to live, and uh, he didn't come just to give us an inspiring example and then expect us to copy him and try our best to live like him. That's not what it's all about. I run across all people all the time that think that being a Christian is just trying to live according to the example of Christ. It's not trying to live according to an example. It's being saved and we can't do it ourselves. Our shepherd has to come and do it all for us and take us home we're not like dogs that can be pointed in the right direction then they can take it from there we're sheep we need more than teachers we need more than rules or directions we need a savior Jesus told them how bad that, 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 that he explained to them that Teachers, good instruction wasn't going to do it. In Matthew twenty three thirty four he says and it's there in your handout, therefore behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. See, sheep bite. And even today, we've come to that place in the last days where we try to find those teachers and preachers that will tickle our ears and tell us what we want to hear, not tell us negative stuff. Well, part of the gospel is negative, and you have to go through the negative to get to the positive. And we need a Savior. We need someone who has to do everything we should do live the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died in order to bring us all the way home. Now, I need to tell you there's something that's very unpopular today in our current culture, but I tell it to you because it's the truth. Everyone is utterly lost in sin and we cannot save ourselves at all. You know, the Enlightenment began over 200 years ago and it brought forth the view and the idea that we were, uh, that the, or the brought forth that the idea that we are, uh, born sinful and that we cannot save ourselves. Uh, the Enlightenment looked on that as a repugnant doctrine and has been trying to push it out of, uh, thought, uh, ever since it came about. Rousseau which a lot of people have embraced taught that children were born innocent and that we just mess them up with education and culture well if you ever watch a child when they're born they're born just as self-centered as they can be they're going to fuss at you if you don't feed them on time you try to take their pick up their toy they'll grab and say mine you know they have this thing uh we have a grandson that uh when we needed him to eat more, and the best way to get him to eat more, say, oh boy, that sure looks good on your plate. Gobble, gobble, gobble. If he thought you were going to try to eat his food, he'd go ahead and eat it first. And we could get him to eat, playing on his human nature, his not, uh, what do you say, anyway, on the na- a nature that was self-centered and selfish. And the thing is, we are born that way. And uh, the thing is, is that uh, Rousseau, uh, he thought that uh, everybody was just born just really, really good. And then the people around them just messed them up. But uh, the great irony is that after over 200 years, two world wars, after countless other wars and global terrorism, after being disillusioned by so many of our leaders, And so many of our institutions, everybody knows that this stuff is wrong. That man is not basically good. We know that the enlightenment was wrong and that Rousseau was wrong. And yet our society is so schizophrenic about this that they still want to hold that this stuff about sin and salvation is repugnant. But what do they do about it? Well, author al jacobs said most of us know now that rousseau was wrong that man when he knocked off his chains set up the death camps modern culture says it has left behind christianity's repulsive doctrine of original sin but it also says that it has left behind rousseau's naivete about human nature so where the heck are we And he didn't use the word heck, but I just didn't want to say it here in church. But it leaves us at the truth. The truth is that God's word has never changed. The Enlightenment did not change God's word. Nothing will change his word. And his word offers the same solution today that it did 200 years ago and that it did 2,000 years ago. We need a savior. We need a good shepherd. We need tending. We need direction. Tim Keller tells of meeting a man from Bosnia. And as he was visiting with this man, this man uh, uh, said, you know, here in America, y'all, but this time of the year, y'all get so divided. You know, there's Republicans and Democrats and, and you just don't have anything to do with each other and uh, just on each other all the time and all. He said, you know, I'm a Democrat, but uh, when I meet a fellow Bosnian, all that just fades away. And Tim Keller said, why? He said, because we have both experienced life and death. And there, And You see there, and what he meant is there are some things in life, that just overshadow our differences. There are some deep experiences that we go through that get to our core and change us. And when we run across other people who have had that same and share that experience, there's a kindred there. And it makes no difference whether Republican or Democrat or Black or White or Hispanic or Indian or Muslim or whatever. If there's that deep experience, it overshadows everything. There's a bond that's deeper than all the other bonds. And you know what? Being saved is an intense, life-altering experience. It's like dying and being born again. When you realize how deep your Savior's love is for you, it is life-saving. You're his treasure. And he went so far and he went through so much just for you to bring you home. When you realize how deep his love is, you're changed. He sought me out when I was lost and I could never get home on my own. He did everything he could to bring me home. When you finally are overwhelmed by God's love, it gives you the most unique joy in the world. You know, many types of joy are at the exclusion of others. Have you ever noticed that? Whenever your child does good in school and brings home good grades. You're so glad that he's doing better than the other kids. Do you see how, or he, she is, you see how that's an exclusive thing in a way? Uh, when you get the job and you're so happy about that, there were other people applying for it. They didn't get it. Your joy is at is someone else's exclusion in some way. I'm a member of the Urban Gentry Watch Club. And uh, we have a Facebook page. It's a very neat bunch of guys. Uh, I think there's a gal or two. No, there's no g- gals in it for some reason. But anyway, uh, whenever you go on there, you'll see guys that they've got. They just received their grail watch, they call it. The watch they have longed for their whole lives. And we all rejoice with them because they got this wonderful watch. But see, the joy is because there are a lot of people who can't afford this watch, you know? You see how there's an exclusion to the joy even whenever others rejoice with them. But the joy that we have, that's the joy of our salvation and the joy that comes from knowing Jesus Christ as our good shepherd that we can trust with our lives, with everything in us, when we have gotten to the place where we really realize that and embrace that, there's a joy that goes deep. And it's a joy that other people have too. And when you run across the other people that have that same joy, it's a shared joy, yes. But at the same time, it's a joy that can't be exclusive because it's a joy that knows no color bounds, it knows no nationalities. When Sharon and I were went, went traveling a while back, we found other people that shared the joy of Christ with us in other lands. It's a joy that knows no bond, no bounds. It's a joy that goes deep and binds us with others like us. We're all sheep in the same fold. We're a part of the same family. And you can never look down your nose on someone. You see, and this is part of what he was getting across to those religious scribes and Pharisees. You can't look down your nose on them because they need to be in the same flock that you are. And if they don't know God, we need to share with them that there's a joy in knowing him, and you want them to know him. You see, it's not an exclusive thing. It's not the exclusion of others. It gives you a humility, a humility as you look on others, and a love for them. You share a deep bond because you all have the same loving shepherd. In depicting himself as a shepherd, Jesus is making a deep statement about his relationship to you and to me. You see, the shepherd totally controls the lives of his sheep. He doesn't just get together with them for a meeting once a week and give them their uh, directions for the coming week. Uh, He doesn't make sure that they're still headed in the right direction. It's a constant thing every day and so what he's trying to say when he's saying that he's your shepherd he's saying give yourself body soul mind spirit give yourself to me completely completely there are a lot of methodists let's face it that are trying to be good sheep but you know Acting like a sheep doesn't make you a sheep, does it? Sheep are going to act like sheep, but imitating a sheep does not make you a sheep. And that's something we've lost something in the United Methodist Church because we're trying to get people to just get out and, and help with hurricanes and do this good thing and do that good thing without first becoming a part of the flock and sharing that deep joy. And that's the thing that underlies everything. Yes, we will do all these things. Those are actions that sheep do. The sheep will feed the hungry. They will clothe the naked. But feeding the hungry and clothing the naked does not make you a sheep. I hope you can see the difference. It's not just your spirit, your body, your soul, your mind, everything. He wants to be your good shepherd. And he is the one shepherd that we can trust. Many trust other people. They trust their friends. They trust their family to guide them and direct them. He is the only shepherd that we can trust. In Jesus' time on earth, a lamb was a a very important part of the Passover meal. And yet on the night when Jesus gathered his flock, his 12 disciples together for the last meal, as they sat there, they found it very strange because there was no lamb. And I'm sure they were sitting around wondering, where's the lamb? That's the focal part. That's where the blood came from that we were supposed to put on the the lentils and the doorpost. It's the lamb we're supposed to eat up. Where's the lamb? It turns out there was no lamb, you see. There was no lamb on the table because the lamb was at the table. And he took a loaf of bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body. He said, I am your lamb. This is my blood. This goes on the lentils of your heart. Feed on me trust in my blood. He's saying, I am the shepherd you can trust. I'm the shepherd you can put your trust in completely because I am the only shepherd who became a lamb so I could bring you all the way home. Notice he does it at the table and he has them share. You see, it's not just Jesus and me. It's Jesus and us. We are a family bound together, feeding on his body and his blood. He's saying there to his disciples, you and me included, now please trust your shepherd by committing and loving one another. He said it another time that night whenever he said, this is my commandment that you love one another. Don't be butting each other. Don't be jostling each other. Love one another. And as we do that, something amazing happens to us. There's a transformation that takes place in us. You see, at first, whenever Jesus is walking along with Peter, And he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my lambs, feed my sheep. He's calling Peter. The shepherd is calling the sheep to be a shepherd to the other sheep. He doesn't do it. Just to Peter, though, later in James, we see him saying, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. And You know, religious people don't confess to each other. Religious people hide their sin from each other. They don't confess to each other because they've got to be good. But whenever you share that bond of knowing that you're a sinner saved by grace and the shepherd is there with you, then all of a sudden you can minister to sheep who are going astray, who need help, who need healing, who need wholeness. And we can become shepherds because our great shepherd became a lamb.